Hey, good evening, everyone. It is so good to welcome you all tonight. I'm going to actually begin talking knowing that there are some folks who are, uh, now that they're hearing me, are going to make their way in. So we'll encourage those who are still out in Peeler Hall to make your way inside. Uh, but in the meantime, I want to say welcome to you. It's so good to, uh, to be here tonight. Father John and I have been really looking forward to this night for a long time, and uh, it's been such a beautiful opportunity for us to um, grow together and learn from each other and just uh, celebrate our common ministry together. And that's what we're here for, is to uh, celebrate our common ministry with one another. So we want to welcome you to the first of three opportunities to gather together as members of Sacred Heart and, and St. John's to consider who we are um, as members of the same body of Christ, children of the same heavenly, same heavenly Father. I'm Rhodes Woolley, uh, pastor here at St. John's, and along with Father John Eckert from Sacred Heart, we just think it's, uh, it's good for us to be here tonight. Um, as you know, brief, brief little intro, as you know, or maybe you don't know, We've been commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that, as it turns out, brought significant change to this world and, and to the church a number of years ago, uh, something that officially began on October, 7, October 31st, 1517. But of course, as anything uh, begins, there's always a prelude and there's always a postlude. So the event, of course, lasted for a good long time. But, but that's sort of the event that we, that we think of and we mark when Martin Luther nailed 95 grievances to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, he didn't intend for the church to be divided, but as you know, the church was divided. Um, and we've been sort of wrestling with that division ever since. In fact, for, for, uh, for 500 years, we've sort of been arguing uh, as to whether we, or not we, the church should have been divided. But one thing that we have agreed upon, it's that the church... Uh, definitely needed to be reformed. A church always needs to be reformed. We're an ever-reforming church, no matter who we are, and so that's one thing, thankfully, we can agree on. If the last 500 years have been marked by division, then our hope is that the next 500 years will be marked by unity, by uh, finding common purpose uh, for the sake of the common good. And we believe that we're sort of in that place. Uh, we believe that we're sort of in a little sweet spot that, that could, really could, who knows, whether it's in our laf- lifetime or the lifetime of our children, may very well bring significant change to our churches even, but, but at least allow the world to look to us and, and utter the word unity rather than, rather than division. And wouldn't that be an amazing opportunity? The anniversary, um, I think it's interesting to note, began, this 500th anniversary began last October, October of 2016 on October 31st, with a joint service of Catholics and Lutherans at the Lund Cathedral in Sweden. It was, it was uh, led by the General Secretary of the Lutheran World Federation and by Pope Francis. At the service, the Lutheran Bishop Martin Junge um, said this, and I think it was interesting enough to share tonight. It's our call to move forward, answering faithfully God's call, and by doing so, responding to the cries for help, to the thirst and the hunger of a wounded and broken humanity. And if tomorrow God would see us holding stones in our hands, like those we carried in former times, may they not be to, may they not be, to be thrown at each other. 
Who could throw the first stone now that we know that we are in Christ? May they not be used either to build walls of separation and exclusion. How could we when Jesus calls us to be ambassadors of reconciliation? Rather, may God find us building bridges so that we can come closer to each other, houses where we can meet together, and tables, yes, even tables, where we can share bread and wine, the presence of Christ, who has never left us and who calls us to abide in Him so that the world might believe. That's our hope. That's what draws us here together today, to join together as brothers and sisters with the goal of finding and building bridges, not walls. I'd like for us to begin, if you don't mind, with a word of prayer. And these are two prayers I'm going to lift up that are shared by uh, both of our, our denominations, um, prayers that are written for occasions just like these. So if you'd join me in a word of prayer. God, our Father, your Son, Jesus, prayed that His followers might be one. Make all Christians one with Him as He is one with us, so that in peace and accord we may carry to the world the message of your love. O gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where it is anything, where where it anything is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in need, provide for it. And where it is divided, reunite it. As we gather this evening, Lord, pour out upon us your one and unifying spirit and awaken in us a holy hunger and thirst for unity in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Okay, so here's sort of the little process that we're going to take. Tonight, we're going to focus, we are together three times. I hope that you'll join us all three times. Tonight, we're going to focus on... um, on our background, sort of provide a little bit of a context. Next time we're together, we'll be at Sacred Heart, and we'll talk about today's realities. And the third time we're particularly excited about, it'll be a time for a covered dish dinner together and a worship time together. And to be honest, we have no idea where that's going to be. So we're going to let the Holy Spirit sort of guide us in that direction, and eventually we'll let you know. (laughs) But uh, we look forward to that occasion so much. But tonight, we're going to focus on some background. In, in fact, in a few moments, Gary Fries, Dr. Gary Fries from Catawba College, is going to be with us to provide a historical context, particularly of Catholics and Lutherans in the Piedmont or in this North Carolina area, maybe getting close to Rowan County, followed by a brief intro to our two congregations. Then it's your turn. We're going to invite you to gather together with the groups of folks members of Sacred Heart, members of St. John's uh, together to ask one another, what do you appreciate most about your congregation and more broadly about your church? And at the end of the tonight, we'll, we'll uh, share a very small portion, a taste of, uh, of a, a document that we want to take a look at next, next time together. It's a significant document, <clears throat> excuse me, called From Conflict to Communion, and within it are what are called the five ecumenical imperatives, imperatives for our two churches. Uh, And those are things that we will study next time or look at um, next time together. We wanted to share it with you tonight, just in case you might find it interesting to review on your own between now and then. But uh, you've, you've received some copies as you came in, and, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But that's enough for me. Uh, how about if I bring Gary forward?
Gary, thank you so much for being here tonight. Welcome. I talk into that. Good. Well, I bring you. How's that? That worked in the back? You got me? Well, I bring you greetings from the Reform College up the street. If you didn't know, Catawba College was founded by German Reformed uh, adherents in the 1850s. We still cling to that in some small ways. We have an inside joke every year when we have our opening convo that depending upon whether our chaplain, Ken Clapp, uses two T's or a D in God tells us how, how good a year we're going to have. There'll be a test at the end to figure out which one it means. So, um, if you'll let me start, um, a Lutheran, a Catholic, and a Jew went into a dairy bar. Oh, I'm sorry, that's my Sunday school lesson Sunday. <laughs> and it's a really bad joke, but... I'm going to start with three stories that I hope are going to help you understand the importance to our spirituality for why we're here. The first one is very simple. I grew up in Statesville, 30 miles to the west, and I knew Jewish people by the time I was in high school, but I had never met a Catholic. That was in 1960-something. Now, if you don't know, Statesville had a fairly sizable Jewish population, and I did know them. I, by the way, am an honorary Jew in Statesville, but we'll t come to that later. The second story is when my wife Sue and I moved to South Carolina, and she went to work in the hospital there, and because it was the South, one of the first questions you get is, who are your people? And she was from Chicago, so therefore that didn't exist. And secondly, of course, you know the next question, where do you go to church? And she said to the wonderful African-American colleague that she had, well, I'm a Lutheran. And this wonderful lady who became our friend later hesitated a moment and said, and touched her arm and said, honey, is that a Christian church? <laughs> and that's a true story. The third story is the story of us. And that's the story that I want to begin to help you understand tonight by giving you a little bit of a background. And the two stories I told earlier help you set the theme. And it's this. Identity, where we live, has traditionally been modestly tribal. And that it has carried forth through time, and it has tended to both divide us and direct us in both, I would argue, positive and negative ways, and that in some ways, as I do argue in both my Sunday school and my freshman seminar at the college, I am wondering if the next Reformation is upon us, and I wonder if we are going through what I call, from a scholarly point of view, a deformation. I'll come back to that later. And I'll let you think about that as we look upon what the boundaries are that we have. So I want you to start with what's important, Baptist and Methodist. So if everyone will actually turn to my handout that has the color, you will notice the high technology of the colored pencils. This is version 3.2. I want everyone to look at the sectarian geography of North Carolina in the 1850s. 
you will note that the orangey ones are Lutherans. I'll come back to them. You will note that the purpley ones are Catholic. I did that on purpose. And you will note that they did not match each other in terms of geography. We'll come back. That there was a division there that was very describable. But you need to understand that together, Lutherans and Catholics in 1850 in North Carolina accounted for 2% of churchgoers. And I'm rounding up. The data is very succinct. 45% of church-going North Carolinians were Baptist. 45.1% of churchgoers were Methodist. This was an incredibly evenly divided state before the Civil War, and it may shock you to know Methodist actually outnumbered Baptist. The Southern Baptist Church is mostly a post-war phenomenon, not an antebellum phenomenon. If you will then, and, and by the way, 5% were Presbyterians, and everyone else made up the 5% that was left, including us. Just think of it that way. And the best guess is there were 600 Catholics. I've heard various estimates for Lutherans, but it's several thousand. All right, look at the maps, and you will get the theme of why we're here in a very oblique way. Now this is based upon my data that I did as a project years ago in graduate school, which is one reason it was never computerized. And if you will look where it shows the red counties, those are Methodist counties. Notice that they are in two distinct locations. What we call today in North Carolina the Tidewater, that's the coast, and then if you will notice it's here. It's in what you call the Piedmont. You will notice by the way, that Methodists also make up the tail end, if you will, of the state. Then if you will notice that blue are Baptist, and you will notice that the strength of the Baptist church at that time was the coastal plain and the, what we call today the high country around Boone. Notice how there's very little checkerboarding. Do you notice that? That it clusters, it clumps. This kind of identity was incredibly central to North Carolina. By the way, if you're wondering what are the white counties, that's where you couldn't call it. They were even. All I'm measuring is which of those two denominations outnumbered each other. That's all I'm doing. Okay. Now, to show you how important all this is for your understanding, look at the politics. That's the little map below it. Now, if you don't know, the Whigs were the forerunners of the Republican Party, and they were incredibly strong in North Carolina before the Civil War, and the Democrats were the Blue Party, as you see there. But you must remember, and most of you are old enough to know this, that when I say Democrats in the 1850s, I am not talking about New Deal liberal Democrats. That is the party of Andrew Jackson. That is the party of localism. That is the party of do not come tell us what to do. In contrast, Whigs were the party of public education, centralized banking, government involvement in the economy and the infrastructure, and Democrats, in a very unchristian way, did that to that. If you think I'm describing today's political de definitions, I am. Look at that. Look at how it divides us. By the way, just to help you understand how this carries forth, 
Do you see that really dark blue clump on the church map? Put your finger in the middle of the coastal plain. If you know where it is, I'm pointing at Wilson Rocky Mount in the north central coastal plain. That is the heart of voting support for 30 years for Jesse Helms. The more it changes, the more it stays the same. And if you are a Lutheran and or a Catholic, notice how I used and or, a Catholic in this state, we still live with these things. We still live with this denominational identity, which is also a regional identity, which is also a community identity. And it has a lot to do with where I think the openness to conversation versus the closeness to not conversation begins to help us sort of understand each other. Now, if you'll have this map ready, we're going to go to Lutherans because they got here first. Now, Rhodes asked me to answer the question, why did they come here? Well, the answer is very simple. Location, location, location. It was all about real estate. The original Lutherans in North America lived in Pennsylvania and Maryland. And in the, eight, I'm sorry, in the 1720s, they began to filter south when there was essentially a real estate crunch around Philadelphia. Land prices grew rapidly as population did, and your alternative was moving north in with the Iroquois, and that tended to have fatal consequences. So instead, they came south through Virginia, and they filtered down to here. And the second question that you have to understand is, why would they have ever stopped here? Well, the answer is very simple. The red clay is not topsoil. Most, most North Carolinians don't know this today, but most of this area was prairie grass. And estimates are that the topsoil, which was black, was around three to four feet deep. It's all gone. There's only about four places we found any remnant of it anywhere in this area. They plowed it away. It washed away. They wouldn't have stopped here if it had looked like it does today. You need to understand that. That in many ways, some of the struggles we have as a state are rooted in our early farming practices. But they came, they liked what they saw, and they stayed. But the Lutherans didn't come first. The first guys to come were the Presbyterians, who were Ulster Scots. If you will look on your map, and again, this is the multicolored map that looks like this. You will see all those blues in Mecklenburg, Rowan, and Iridal County. Do you, everyone see it? And then do you see all the pinks? And they kind of surround the blues. Well, guess where most of the prairie grass was? Where it's blue. Guess who held the power? The Presbyterians. Guess who was the second rank? The Lutherans and the other Germans, including the German reforms. You will notice that the pink is basically a kind of cluster that goes south from where Winston-Salem is today to Cabarrus County, to Mount Pleasant. You will notice it's fairly consistent and it's fairly clustered together. Again, this idea of clumping, of local identity, is very much part of what is rooted in North Carolina's historical consciousness. You will then see that there is a second small clump of pink on the left where Hickory is. And obviously we all know that that 
Hickory becomes the center of Lutheranism. You will notice it is smaller geographically, but actually numerically it was almost equal. It was higher population over there. And then finally, you have that very small pinkishness to the side of Greensboro. Does everybody see where Guilford is? Okay. But you will note that most of the colors are yellow. In other words, people who come of English background and English understanding, including, of course, for us who are people of faith and we hope people of peace, you will see the Quakers there in the center of your map. Those are the little circles which are highly yellow. You'll notice there's nary a Catholic among them. Now remember, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I am the author of a North Carolina textbook that never mentions Catholics to the last chapter. Why is that? Because numerically speaking, what's there to say? Now you could argue against that forever, especially if you're Catholic, but in terms of a survey of our state, remember that North Carolina has been, in time until recently, one of the least Catholic places in the United States. And there's a very easy answer to that, a very facile answer that's at least partly true, and that is fundamentally there weren't, weren't enough towns to accommodate them. At least in North Carolina, if you look at the history of the denomination, Catholics have been by and large an urban town phenomena. Originally, Lutherans were country folks. But Catholics from the beginning tended to be clustered, with only one true exception, in the small towns. And if you will now go back to this map, you will see that my first map with the little orange dots show you that the Lutherans are in the same place in 1850 that they were in 1800. And then if you will look at those scattered purple dots, you will understand the story of Catholicism in its early decades. Every one of those purple dots is a town in a state that had no cities. So in 1850, when Charlotte, in 1851, pardon me, when Charlotte had its first parish established and the first priest began to do mass there, the estimate is 2,000 people lived there. And Salisbury was larger. What you see that are the dots on the coast are the coastal ports, and that includes Fayetteville, which is the one up the river. The Cape Fear River is really part of uh, North Carolina's seacoast. It was the only place you could penetrate it. But you had established congregations in Wilmington, New Bern, and the very oldest in your state, which is Little Washington, the town of Washington. Now, there were Catholics, based upon the records, in other towns, like Elizabeth City, Edenton in 1850 had one, or at least one that admitted it. Elizabeth City had 10. Perhaps there were 100 in Wilmington who were at least nominally so, but the point is that they were small and scattered about. And they were not centrally organized. So the actual first diocese is one that covers the Carolinas and Georgia and is based in Charleston, South Carolina. That made sense. Even priests go where the money is, of course, for God's will and mission. You can get me later for that, John, if you wish. But at any rate, the point is that fundamentally it made sense for you to be in Charleston because that was the center of it. 
to visit these congregations, as Bishop, Bishop England began to do in the 1820s, was a month-long task. And he usually had to spend the night with Baptist. <laughs> and, according to the records, when they did preach sermons, the majority of the people who came to listen weren't Catholic. And some of them didn't like what they heard. Because, of course, you had the standard, you know all this, the standard popery about jokes and, pre and prejudices that were going on everywhere were occurring here. Because think about it, there were probably more, at some point, there were probably more ancient aliens in the state than there were Catholics in terms of how many people that you find across the landscape. Nobody knows because there wasn't a census. And realize that my map is from the 1850s, at a time when denominationalism was at its peak in some ways. Now, if you, to understand again and drive home my point, if you'll turn to this map. And I gave you this map because I think this one drives home the point of how localism, at least traditionally in this state, has been the character. Most of you have heard of the male versions of these colleges. They play basketball today. Do you notice something very interesting? All the female schools by 1850 were almost exactly 30 miles away from the male schools. Very interesting pattern. Uh, Meredith will come later, should you be wondering about the Baptist. But fundamentally, you had Wake Forest and Lewisburg, I will skip that atheistic place called the university. You go to Trinity and Greensboro, and then you go to Davidson, and if you don't know what Statesville means, that is Mitchell Community College today. But originally it was the Statesville Female College, etc. And then you will notice that late to the action is who? The Germans. And you had Catawba College established in Newton near Hickory. And then finally, about 1860, the Lutherans got it together in Mount Pleasant in Cabarrus County and opened what they called very euphemistically North Carolina College. And they were brave. They put the girls three blocks away. I don't know what that means, but it probably leads to better bar jokes later. At any rate, that is sort of to show you where they came from and a sort of why they came. And at this point, I'll stop and let you ask any questions. Uh, I, of course, I haven't told you about Belmont Abbey. We'll get to that in the second part. But does anybody have a question? I'm sort of at the Civil War, which is the usual divide. Anyone? Okay, well, we'll head on. So what did the war do? A lot. What it tended to do, particularly among Catholics, was take weak parishes and make them weaker because Catholics were more suspect than good Baptist, Methodists, et cetera, who were Southern, Southern, Southern. One of the first lay heroes of Catholicism in the state was a doctor, and I'm gonna mispronounce his name, Kudelin, who lived in Halifax, one of the river ports. And he was apparently a faithful Catholic through 30 years of a wife who hated Catholicism. And he had been a unionist, and she was a rabid confederate. I would love to have their diaries. Wouldn't that be a study in ecumenism? <laughs> in terms of that. 
The other connection to the Civil War and what it does is, of course, here in Salisbury, and that is one of the first, we'll call it famously Catholics in the state, was Francis Fisher, who became Francis Fisher Tiernan, who ironically has a connection to St. John's because her grandfather, Charles Fisher, shows up in our records in the 1820s but by the 1850s, her father, the second Charles Fisher, shows up at St. Luke's as an Episcopalian. Are you noticing a liturgical trend here? And after the death of her father and the impoverishment of her family, her aunt converted to Catholicism. And at some point, to me it's a little murky, she made the great decision that Catholicism was the fulfillment and the restoration of her soul, her spirit, and for our purposes, our community because she became a, a moving force, if you will, both in the parish that became Sacred Heart and in the self-identity of Salisbury. And she, in a sense, was Salisbury's first grand dame. If you don't know, she became at least a modestly famous novelist in the Gilded Age. Um, I find her novels to be odd to read, but then again, I find Henry James odd to read. And she was writing very much in the same kind of genre of romance in quaint places, none of which were ever Salisbury. She never set one here. Her name is Frances Fisher Tiernan, T-I-E-R-N-A-N. She has a marker on our cemetery down on, down on uh, South Main. She was instrumental because she gave the family farm to set up what is the Sacred Heart site. And she then, in 18, that was in the 1880s, she then in the 1890s helped set up the housing for the first priest to come and be in residence. And that actually was the pattern for Catholicism after the Civil War, because you almost always had to have someone who was a lay Catholic be central to the clustering that needed to follow. The most famous of those, and I was fascinated by this story, I did not know it, was a convert named John Monk, kid you not. He was a Methodist who became a Catholic in the metropolis of Newton Grove, North Carolina. If you've never been, they have an old traffic circle. They're in Sampson County, and Sampson County, he somehow met a priest, thought about it, decided to convert, read the literature, and in the 1870s set up a parish at Newton Grove that in 1898 had 300 members, and it was of both races. Sadly, because of the timor of the times, it was a segregated community. They literally in the 20th century had a black chapel next to a white chapel, but the same priests did most of the work for both. It was the biggest anomaly in some ways of Catholicism in North Carolina, that in the middle of tobacco country, you would find this viable, healthy Catholic school parish with church, chapel, priest, nuns in residence, etc. Unlike in one city, it was just basically a crossroads community. Now the other factor is of course to mention that by the 1870s, they had begun to go to Belmont, which led to both the Belmont Abbey with the monks as well as the Sisters of Mercy 
who, of course, remember, established the hospital in Charlotte as well as the convent and the school and the orphanage that they participated with at Belmont. You may not know the story that the Sisters of Mercy had gone earlier to Hickory, established a school where they intended to teach both the two or three Catholic girls in town and wealthy Protestant girls. They stayed about three years, and according to local legend in Hickory, one of the Shuford girls, if you don't know, the Shufords are the Rockefellers of Hickory, decided to convert, and very quickly those sisters found out that Belmont was a better place to live on the Catawba River. At least that's the story they tell in Hickory. But I will remind you that Hickory is the place where Lutherans are so numerous they get mad like Baptists and move across the street and build a new church. If you've never been on Springs Road in Hickory, there are three Lutheran churches of the same derivation. And, and I'm not kidding, they literally move across the street and build a new church. During the period that Catholicism is growing in most of the towns of North Carolina, Lutherans are moving to town for work, for commerce, for education, etc. And you begin to see Lutheran churches in almost all the towns. Statesville gets its church in the 1870s. Uh, you have various churches in Greensboro established, and you begin to see a spread, if you will, by the turn of the 20th century. So what's happened by World War I is that both of the denominations have become more urban, more scattered, and shall we call it more infiltrated into the denominational structure of every town in the state where they are. They aren't in every town, but they are increasingly getting their presence. And it is, I don't think by accident, that both of these churches have the establishment of their unified administration, the North Carolina Diocese for the Catholics in the 1920s, and what we call in Lutheranism the United Synod of 1920 that establishes itself here in Salisbury. By the time the 20s come along, you fundamentally have an infrastructure that is able to take advantage of town life and serve God both in country and city. So I'll stop here. I think that gets us to where we wanted, don't you, Rhodes? Anybody else got a question? Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. I didn't mention that. Yeah. Well, the story... What he's referring to is that North Carolina wrote his constitution in 1776 and basically said that only a Protestant could hold office. And that was rooted in a statewide reaction to British attempts to impose the Anglican church upon the state. That had gone very badly both across the colony and here in Salisbury where the first Anglican priest had to leave town because, you ready? the vestry had to have elections and Presbyterians all ran for it, won, and then refused to take an oath of loyalty to the Church of England. Therefore, he couldn't get paid, therefore he left. Um, the anti-Catholicism, I argue as a North Carolina historian, is not very relevant. It was more of a reaction to the liturgical world and that there hardly had been any, it was also a ban on Jews, that there really wasn't particularly any animus towards Catholics in the state. 
it was part of a general Presbyterian fear that the Pope would move to America and take over. And I'm being serious. David Caldwell, the leading person who helped establish the university, literally said that during the debates over the convention in the Constitutional Convention in Fayetteville, he said, while well, this Constitution, this is talking about the federal Constitution, it, there's no line in here which says the Pope can't be president. Therefore, we're all in mortal danger. So I will tell you, it's those stupid Irishmen on the wrong side of the beer. Now, the story, you also need to understand that the legitimation of that is that, of course, the first great Catholic is William Gaston, who is a wonderful lay Catholic in New Bern. His family was Catholic. He was born, he went to Georgetown, and he ran and was elected to Congress. He was considered to be one of the great judges in the state. And it was just like me. I grew up and knew there were Catholics and I knew there were Jews, but it didn't matter. And that's what really the story is. So that, that you know, that obliteration was also just the fact that North Carolina sucked as a state for about 50 years. Gee, that's not news. Yes. But but condemning South Carolina is a whole nother lecture. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying in South Carolina it mattered because Charleston was a multi-ethnic society. We had nothing like that. You gotta remember again, much of this is by neglect. Oh, you're a Catholic, I've heard of those. And that really was for a long time much of what most North Carolina thought in that way. That help, I think. Well, it depends on which side of the Irish you wanna be. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, I wanna thank you. I do think what we're doing is important. I think it's not only important for our mutual congregational interest, but I think at this time in our state's history, anything we can say like this helps all of us. Well, that is gonna be a tough act to follow, my goodness. So we decided, you know, we wanted to kind of move from like the macro, huge, you know, 500 years of the Reformation uh, history to try to sort of bring it to a local level. Um, I have to say, first and foremost, as I, you know, get to kind of start speaking this evening, I just want to say thank you very much to Pastor Rhodes Woolley for reaching out in the first place. I think it was back in July that, that he first emailed me just kind of talking about, you know, we should do something, you know, kind of coming together. And it's been great. We've had the opportunity to get together and meet several times and just to try to figure out, you know, what, what can we kind of do just to bring our communities together and start to, you know, move forward to work towards uh, that elusive unity uh, that is so difficult. And I really appreciate Dr. Fries and his wonderful presentation and, and uh, you know, to look at our own local history. And I'll be honest with you, I'm just a kid from Illinois. Like, it's, it's all kind of new to me in so many ways. And so often, it's like we have, 
you know, the study of, you know, church history all the way back in the beginning, the Acts of the Apostles, you look at 500 years ago, but to look in our own backyard sometimes, it can be quite a difficult thing. Mark, I've got some things on the Oxford movement for you, and I'll bring them up a little bit here as well. And I'll tell you one of the, the great things about this too is that, you know, we've talked about the need for self-reflection um, as we look at, you know, this anniversary at this time, you know, to look at ourselves. And I've got to tell you, I feel kind of woefully inadequate uh, as a pastor. Um, one of my brother pastors here in the Diocese of Charlotte, who's actually a Salisbury native, in fact, he's the pastor over in Mooresville at St. Therese Parish there, Father Mark Lawler. He's so proud of Salisbury that even though he's in Mooresville, his front license plate thing still says Salisbury. It just, and that's all it says. And I come from the land where they decide you have to have license plates on the front and the back. But here in North Carolina, you can express yourself with whatever you want on the front of your car. It's one of the things I do love about North Carolina. But, you know, he, he loves the place. But one of the things he said that he learned in seminary was that you have to learn the history of the parish. And I only just heard him say that in his opening remarks. He was just made the pastor of St. Therese in Mooresville. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I wish somebody would have told me that, you know, a long time ago. Because, you know, I'll tell you just a little personal story. Uh, my, I'm the oldest of four kids. My youngest brother works for the government, same agency our dad works for. And he just transferred from Birmingham, Alabama to Peoria, Illinois, where we grew up. And he got like a week to go up and look for a place to live. He got like a week, you know, to move. He got like a week to, you know, settle in and all this. Let me tell you what, when we get reassigned as priests, so I was sent a letter and it said, your assignment as pastor of St. John the Baptist in Tryon ends at 1159 on July the 7th, 2014. Your assignment as, as pastor of Sacred Heart in Salisbury begins at noon on July the 7th, 2014. Merry Christmas. Now that's, I mean, it's basically, you know, and you jump in and you get going and that's just kind of the way that it is. And, you know, even as we've been getting together and kind of talking about how do we go about this, you know, still the day-to-day -day life of the parish continues. And if nothing else, I'm just so grateful to get to reach out and develop a friendship with a local pastor. And the fact that we've got so many commonalities in that, the day-to-day -day life of the parish continues but it's so nice to have the opportunity to stop and step back and reflect on your own local history. And I'll tell you, I'm going to give you just kind of a brief rundown of the best that I can do on the history of Sacred Heart. There's so many people that would be so much better at this than me, but I'm going to try to kind of wrap it up in just, just a few minutes. Um, but out of those 600 Catholics in North Carolina, a couple of them came to the Salisbury area. Um, it, it turns out there were two in 1830. They lasted a couple of years, and they moved away. And then... Uh, so Richard Roosh moved from France, 1838, goes to the Lincolnton area where some of his family is, meets Eliza Smith, who is the descendant of the first ordained uh, Lutheran minister, if I'm not mistaken, in the state of North Carolina. She's the direct descendant of the Reverend Johann Gottfried Arndt, who's a native of Germany, came to this country in 1773. Eliza meets Richard Roosh. He's a Catholic. The Smiths aren't real crazy about that. 
What do they do? They elope. And so they go away. They sneak out by stagecoach. They get to Charlotte um, to kind of stay away from the family for a few days. But eventually, Eliza goes back to Lincolnton. She's reconciled with her family. In August of 1838, the two of them move here to Salisbury. Um, they take up residence in the, I think I'm saying this right, the mansion house at the, co- at the corner of Maine and in Innis, um, which is the place where the first mass was celebrated in Salisbury in 1838. Uh, at that time, you have several kind of priests just sort of traveling around and taking care of things. At this point in history, there aren't that many dioceses uh, in the United States. I remember learning about this in church history in school. You've got, you know, the Northeast, there's a lot of Catholics up there, as we just heard in the presentation. You know, the Catholics tend to be in the big city areas. So you've got Baltimore, the first diocese in the United States. You've got your Boston, you've got your Philadelphia, you've got New York, and then, of course, Bardstown, Kentucky. We all knew that that was going to be there, right? It's basically the Diocese of the West. Eventually, you get Charleston, too, which is kind of overseeing this area. But I mean, it's, it's a huge portion of the country. There's priests kind of traveling around, sort of stopping in in some of these missions. Well, the Rouches eventually move away, go to St. Louis. There's essentially no Catholic presence here. They left in 1847. They came back in 1861. Still, not all kinds of Catholics around, but eventually uh, they come back, Richard ends up passing away, and luckily, you know, as we kind of move into that Civil War era and the Oxford movement that Mark Sells brought up, so St. John Henry Newman in Oxford has this huge influence, is influencing people all over the world that are, are converting to Catholicism, and there are a few in this area, in fact, one of them is Francis Christine Fisher, uh, that we just heard a little bit about, also known as Christian Reed, who eventually gives that land to Sacred Heart. You can still see the beautiful church right up the road. Sorry, we're not there anymore. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But so, you know, she does so much for the area. Um, in 1881, uh, the first pastor is named to the Salisbury Mission in 1882. Essentially, the parish is founded with the building of the church. Um, and then in 1887, the Benedictines from Belmont Abbey, so the monastery right down the road, um, under the direction of Abbot Leo Hade. So once again, you've got these different dioceses, right, that are in you know these big cities like Charleston, well, the Holy Father named the uh, Belmont Abbey. It's kind of like they were going to oversee, essentially, North Carolina at this point until the Diocese of Raleigh comes around, if I'm not mistaken, until the 1920s. And then eventually the diocese we have here now, the Diocese of Charlotte, wasn't founded all the way until 1972. So it's still rather a recent thing that you know, we've gotten to that point of being big enough to justify having a diocese. I mean, as we heard, 600 Catholics all the way back in the early part of the 19th century. It's not until, what, 45 years ago that the Diocese of Charlotte is even founded. But things kind of start to pick up. Obviously, we built a church in 1882. Uh, We have uh, monks coming that are our priests for a long time from Belmont Abbey um, until... Uh, I'm sorry, we, we established a school in 1910 under the pastorate of Father Leo Kuntz, and he brought in the Sisters of Mercy. Now, we'd had education and a school essentially um, from 1882 until 1910, but it was really set in stone, and the sisters were brought in. 
at that point. Um, eventually, you move all the way up to uh, 1940, you know, just in that World War II era, and we had outgrown the church. And so the, current, the church that's right there on Fulton at this point was built in 1940 um, under the pastor of Father William Regnant. Now, it didn't take much time uh, before the abbey handed over the direction of the parish to the diocese, so to the diocese of Raleigh. And the first pastor, who was not a Benedictine monk, who was a resident pastor and lived at Sacred Heart, was Father Cletus Helfrich. Now, he started in 1942 and would be the pastor for nearly 30 years until 1971. And as we said just a few moments ago, 1972, you have the formation of the Diocese of Charlotte. And it's right about that time that Father Helfrich passes away and Father Tom Clements comes in. We've had several different pastors um, since then. One other thing, uh, under the, the time that Father Helfrick was the pastor, we were a segregated community here in Salisbury. There was a completely separate parish that was over on Lloyd Street called Our Lady of Victories, and it was run by the Holy Spirit Fathers, or excuse me, the Holy Ghost Fathers. And that was in operation from February of 1942 until December of 1969 when it came back together. An interesting thing, both happened under the direction of Father Cletus Helfrick, both the segregation and the reintegration of the community. It's something I'd like to find out more and more about, but just, to, you know, the fact that, you know, just the, the parish kind of <laughs> moved in that way. Also during the time of Father Helfrick, a lot of things were coming to the area, the new Veterans Hospital, a lot of different uh, business coming to the area, and that drew in more and more Catholics. The, the parish continued to grow. Eventually, we grew to the size uh, after Father Helfrick's time that a second priest had to come on board. In fact, all the way at the end of the 80s, the parochial vicar was uh, then Father Peter Jugas, who's now our bishop, Bishop Peter Jugas. Um, and... So we had several different pastors during this time. Um, in 1995, to be accommodating to the growing Hispanic community in Rowan County, we began a Hispanic ministry program. And Mass began to be celebrated in Spanish uh, one time every Sunday beginning in October of 1995. So 22 years later, uh, our parish is essentially like a 50-50 split between English-speaking and Spanish-speaking. We've just grown so much in that way. Um, in, two th in the year 2000, our 23rd pastor was named Father John Putnam. And I bring that up in particular. He was the pastor for the next 14 years. It was also in that year that he was named pastor that I graduated from high school. So I just find it kind of interesting that that's the way that those things work sometimes. But there you have it. In 2002, Sister Mary Robert Williams, who's a Sister of Mercy and a pastoral associate at Sacred Heart, uh, received the Good Samaritan of the Year Award by the Civilian Club of Salisbury for her work in the parish community. And I bring that up in particular because, A, she left like the day I got there. She had some deal with Father Putnam that I'm leaving when you leave, okay, guy? Which, you know, I never really knew Sister Mary Rob. She still lives at Belmont at the Mother House with the Sisters of Mercy. 
But it's amazing to me that, you know, from 600 Catholics in, you know, the early 19th century to here's the Sister of Mercy who comes to the parish in 1983, and she's receiving that kind of an award from the community, that the Catholics, you know, were eventually growing more and more. Now, obviously, coming in from all sorts of different areas, uh, bringing in quite a bit of diversity to the area. You know, I hear stories, you know, as we heard before about, you know, well, what church do you go to? What's your background? You know, Mary Goodman in the back always likes to tell me the story about, this is a Catholic. Can you believe it? You know, like it just, we sort of stand out, but eventually getting to that point where, you know, Sister Mary Robert is receiving an award from the community, I think it's a pretty amazing thing. Well, the parish continued to grow from about 400 families when Father Helfrich passed away to the point in 2007, 2008 that the church was just bursting at the seams and the, the church building just could not handle the amount of people. From what I'm told, the line to pick up after school also on Council Street was just something to behold and very difficult to manage. And so something had to be done to accommodate this rapidly growing community. So in 2007, 2008, land was purchased. Um, beautiful thing. So 125 years later, after the opening of the first parish, uh, the cemetery was blessed at our new site that's there now. So we moved out uh, to, at first we had some property on Old Moxville Road that went through a whole trade deal. We ended up on Jake Alexander. And uh, to accommodate our about 1,200 families now, uh, here in the Rowan County area. So the boundaries of Sacred Heart Parish aren't just Salisbury. It's the whole Rowan County area. But, you know, so in 2009, that's when that church was open, was dedicated by Bishop Jugas. And so now it's one of those things where we've discussed this before. It's, it's an interesting feeling to know like we're not right in the heart of everything in Salisbury and yet still very much a part of, of things in Salisbury. And so to have this opportunity to be intentional about making sure that we are coming together and to get to do that right here, you know, downtown in this beautiful facility in this beautiful church. I'm just so happy to be here. But it's so nice to, you know, take this time to have this sort of, you know, tangible look at what's the history going on right in this area. One other thing I want to share with you, just something that, you know, the first time I got to really kind of chew on the history of Sacred Heart itself. Last year, our director of religious, religious education, I'm uh, Michael Becker, we wanted to put together like a new crest for our parish. You know, anytime you do that, you want to get all the symbols that you can um, that represent, you know, the area. So what we have, I just wanted to show you this. Sorry, I don't have a picture to put up on the big screen. These are available for $15. I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> but... Um, so, you know, you have the actual sacred heart, the symbol of the parish. You have the crown in the bottom, the symbol of the Diocese of Charlotte. But right there in the middle, there's three different things that I really appreciate a lot. And the one that's the most subtle is the two lines that run right through it. Now, the blue is for the Blessed Mother. We're Catholics. It's the way it is. We love Mary. But you have those two lines, and it's the train tracks to Spencer, one of the things that led to the parish really starting to grow, as I said before, a lot of people coming in from outside the area. And so you have, you know, in Spencer with the Southern Railroad coming in to town at the early uh, part of the 20th century really began to bring Catholics 
to this area. The two fleur-de-lis have to do with our French roots with the Rouge family. And right in the center, uh, that shell, obviously symbolizing baptism, you know, our common Christian unity, but two different uh, important churchmen uh, that have to do with our parish history. One, the Holy Father, when our new church was built, was Pope Benedict, and that was part of his crest. But another important churchman in, in United States church his, Catholic Church history is James Cardinal Gibbons, uh, who was uh, the Archbishop of Baltimore, the prime see of the Catholic Church in the United States. And when he was at one point vicar apostolic of North Carolina, passed through the area several times and celebrated Mass here. And so the fact he's very important in United States Church history, celebrated Mass here in Salisbury. And so you have that right there at the heart of our crest. So it's, it was just kind of an exciting thing. Also at the bottom is a Latin phrase, ut in omnibus glorificetur Deus, which means that in all things God may be glorified. That's the, the motto of Belmont Abbey. Uh, it's a very important important motto for the Benedictines. They served our parish for a very long time, and it serves as our parish motto to this day. And I think, you know, essentially, you know, a big theme of why we're getting together tonight, why we get together for these three sessions, why we continue to do what we do, that in all things God may be glorified. And so, you know, to know that and to kind of see some of that local history, and I'm excited to hear more about the history of St. John's, and Rhodes is going to, uh, to lead us with that now. Thank you. I'll put that just right back here. I think uh, he enjoyed doing that, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, clearly enjoyed researching and, uh, and learning a little bit about Sacred Heart. Uh, that, was, that was fascinating, and thank you for uh, sharing all of that. Um, I'm going to be rather brief. Let me mention that because I want to be sensitive to our time, and I really want to give you all some time to, uh, to share with each other some of the things that you uh, particularly love about your, your own particular congregations and, um, and your church. Um, briefly, let me say this. Here's one thing that I've learned tonight. Two, three things that I've learned tonight. One, that, that we actually have some rich ecumenical roots. I did not know that about Frances Fisher Tiernan. Uh, so she has her father or grandfather was a member at St. John's? Grandfather, let's just go ahead and say he was a member at St. John's. I like that. That just adds to the story. And then eventually she uh, sort of gave the land for Sacred Heart. I love that, that story. And then the Shuford family, I did not know about the Shuford girls. The Shuford family is big in Hickory. Of course, is it the same family that, that we honor on the football field at Catawba College? So there's a Shuford, uh, Shu the Shuford presence at Lenore Ryan College, the Lutheran College. Uh, in Hickory is huge. The Shuford presence at Catawba College is huge. And obviously, the Shufords helped to found Belmont Abbey. Is that right? Fascinating. So we're sort of rooted in, in, uh, in relationship, aren't we? And that's, that's, a, that's a real good thing. Uh, in current context, I went to school with Father John Parent, Putnam. Uh, we knew he was going to be a priest. He sort of knew he was going to be a priest in those days, too, although he grew up a Baptist, I do believe. But we uh, lived together on the same floor uh, in Monty Dorm at Lenore Ein and uh, graduated together as, as well. So, you know, if you ask enough questions, you're, you're all related, right? <laughs> you're going to find some relationship. Briefly, St. John's. 
Lutherans began to organize, uh, at least sort of form more of a denomination in the America, or in America, in the 1740s or so, as Henry Muhlenberg made his way to the, to this, to, to the Americas and, and started to form a real presence in Pennsylvania. Eventually, those Lutherans migrated down through the Shenandoah Valley and into the Yadkin Valley. In fact, our records call them the German pioneers and eventually started to set up shop in places like Rowan County sometime around the 1740s, 50s, and 60s. We like to say at St. John's that, that uh, this place was organized in 1747, but that drives Gary Freeze crazy. And so uh, I just pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> what it does say is that there are Lutherans that are tr trying to figure things out. They're probably organizing themselves as house churches, maybe, as trying to figure out places where they can worship together and grow together. But we certainly know that by the 1760s, we've, we have a, a, a place where we can build a church, and that's what we do. The latter part of the 1700s, though, we had to share that church with our friends that became St. Luke's. So we shared a facility uh, with St. Luke's for 20 or 30 years, it seems. There was not yet a diocese in Western North Carolina, and so, uh, so it was sort of a lovely thing to be able to share with our sisters and brothers at St. Luke's. We shared the same worship facility. I think it's interesting to note uh, that for St. John's at least, and this is true of a lot of churches in colonial days, one of, the, one of the desires of the local community was to build churches in the heart of town so that the church could be literally the heartbeat of the community. Uh, wouldn't that be lovely today uh, if the community wanted the church to be the heartbeat of the community? But at least um, in our presence, we still sort of like to think of ourselves in that same way. So in the 1860s, the church, if you have ever seen the old Lutheran cemetery, it's still there right off of Long Street, Lee Street, Lee Street, Lee Street, yeah, right down from Lee Street, a block away from Lee Street Theater, uh, is, is a site worth going to. Uh, it's, it's where this original structure was built in the 1760s, and that was in some ways that entryway into what would become Salisbury. Eventually, uh, that, that facility would be, or that location would be moved to North Main Street, which was sort of the new entryway into Salisbury. Then in 1927, this new structure was built, uh, which we would love to think is sort of at the exact center of Salisbury, because that's the way we like to think of ourselves. Is that right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but in any case, the point is that, that churches like to, uh, and communities liked for churches to be built in the heart of the community. And so our mission, we've, we've liked to th think for, uh, for 250 years or more, has been to be at the heart of the community. Uh, it's significant for communities to have a, a very solid religious presence, whether it's Lutherans or Catholics or Episcopalians, um, whoever we are. I think one thing that's challenging about our history is that as you look at our facility now, most folks identify who we are by our facility. Our minister of music was here a moment ago, um, Rob DeRocher, he calls it the fortress. And that's a, a challenging sort of description of what we are, and yet, and yet a lot of folks look at this place and define us by our facility. But much of our history did not include that facility, right? Um, uh, in fact, the majority of our history included a small little wooden shack, essentially, uh, 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 what may have looked like a cabin, an old colonial church. Um, in fact, from Civil War time until about 1880 or so, we didn't have a church at all, couldn't afford one. In fact, there are not many records that would even say that we should even claim that era as existing. 
Um, we w- worshipped perhaps out of someone's living room, maybe, until they had the resources to build another facility finally. But that was the era of reconstruction, poverty everywhere. There, there weren't resources to build, and, uh, except, I guess, when Francis Fisher gave the land for Sacred Heart in 1881 or so. And, Right, and so that's that's essentially the time that we built a new facility on North Main Street in Salisbury. So those two churches sort of grew up together from then, from then on. The uh, German presence in this area started to grow significantly in the early part of the of the 20th century, um, and uh, by 19 by the mid 1920s, uh, there was just a desperate need for a new facility. This facility was built in 1927, uh, a place that that, um, goodness, I think the seating capacity was at least listed at 900 people. Uh, I don't know that you could ever fit 900 people in there, but at one point there were more pews, and so perhaps there were smaller people and shorter people, and it was easier to fit 900 people. I don't know. But uh, in any case, that's what, that's what was told, told to us. Um, by the 1950s, as was true in so many places, uh, the church was just bursting at the seams. I mean, everywhere it seemed. And, and so St. John's boasted, at least in its history books, of having the largest Sunday school program in all of the United Lutheran Church. Uh, there were twice as many folks in Sunday school as in Sunday worship. It was a huge ministry and a, and a very important ministry for this church. Um, now, that would start to shift and change significantly right in, around 1967 or so uh, when things started to change significantly across our country. Um, and, and, and yet, we still um, have taken very seriously the, the desire, the heart's desire to share the Word of God with this community, to be a heartbeat of this community where we can be messengers of uh, peace, love, joy, mercy, the character of God, Right. We want to, uh, to bear that character for, for the sake of this community. Much of our identity in the 20th century was defined more by entrepreneurs, perhaps, than, than anything else. Folks that uh, would end up founding like Food Lion and Cheerwine and, and, uh, and Eisenhower Brick were members of this congregation, and, and uh, they took very seriously. They were strong churchmen and, and, uh, and took very seriously their role in, 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 in leading this community, but also in leading the church. Um, the Synod, I should say, by, I skipped over this, the Synod of North Carolina was founded here at St. John's in Salisbury in 1802, 1803, depends on which date you choose. Uh, and, and as a result, sort of Salisbury has, has been that sort of center of Lutheranism for North Carolina for a number of years. Our bishop continues to live here in Salisbury as a member of our church. He's not required to be a member at St. John's, but often is. Um, and the Senate office here is in, is in Salisbury. That's who we are today. You're sitting in uh, the newest part of our facility, uh, the Faith Center, which was opened two years ago. Um, and its, uh, its desire is to be a space for contemporary worship, but also a space for gatherings like these around conversations that matter. That's, that's a phrase that we're trying to use more and more often. We want to be a place uh, that allows for conversations that matter. Uh, because, you know, it's hard to have those conversations these days, and it seems like there aren't, there's not much space for that kind of conversation because we're always just 
ready to pick a fight with one another. We want to we create space for conversations that matter with people who might disagree or who might have differences of opinion, uh, and yet together we can, we can learn from each other. But so glad to be here tonight, so glad to uh, be with these two gentlemen in particular, and uh, thank you for your, for your presence. Father, Father John. So, I, yeah, I apologize. I, I think I was very excited when I was talking. And I think we kind of, I went, went probably over my allotted, like, I mean, we, we tried to set up the, the best amount of time. I think we gave ourselves this, the split of 15, and I think I took 25. So I apologize for that very much. Um, but as far as, you know, having some good conversations that matter tonight, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, just something that kind of came out of, of our discussions. Uh, there was one day we were meeting and just kind of, you know, talking about you know, various things, uh, you know, what we may include uh, in all this and when the dates would be. And we were kind of looking ahead, you know, at this point, it's like, well, if we go to December and try for some Tuesday nights, and one of them was like, well, if we go to the second Tuesday of each month, and I said, well, December the 12th, it's going to be kind of difficult. And he said, you know, why is, I, I said, but we could probably make it work somehow. And so, no, why is that? And I said, well, it's, it's the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, and wrote to ask, you know, a little bit about Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I get excited when I talk about things. And I, you know, once again, love Mary. And so we're talking about like this, you know, the, the, the solemnity of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's a huge thing at Sacred Heart, mainly the night before. We'll have a big procession on December 11th. Mass is at, like, it ends at midnight. I'll be rip-roaring and wide awake on the 12th, by the way. No, I won't. I've gotten very old. But no, it's, it's you know, one of those things where you just kind of get excited. And out of that came, I wanted to have a chance in the midst of this to have some conversations with one another about what excites us about our faith. You know, what about your parish do you really appreciate? The one thing I'd say is kind of abnormal tonight. We've got a whole lot of Catholics right in the front row. It's very unusual. Usually they sit in the back. Um, but what we are going to ask for, I'm sorry, Cindy, right? Yes, you're right in the front there. Thank you so much, Cindy. I'm proud of you. But if we could just take probably about like 10 to 15 minutes and do an actual 10 to 15 minutes, not my version of it, but to kind of mix with some folks that you don't know, you know, that are from you know, the opposite of either you know, St. John's and Sacred Heart folks, maybe just having a little conversation about what you appreciate about your parish. You know, I think, uh, and actually I do have one favor to ask too, if we can have the, the beautiful pictures that were running when we came in tonight to go back up, because I'll tell you, just to see that and to see the similarities, right? there on the board, but just to kind of maybe even, you know, spark some memories. But it take about 10 to 15 minutes just to kind of mingle, you know, with some folks that you don't know and talk about some things about your parish uh, that you really appreciate. And uh, we'll just kind of reconvene here in just a few minutes. All right. Well, I will tell you, uh, when we started meeting to talk about having these, these three events, you know, it's one of those things where you just never know how many people are going to show up, you know, are people going to be interested in this? But 
I would say, you know, I think this was a, a wonderful beginning, and I'm also just grateful that we have two more coming. Um, just this is very exciting, and as we kind of call everybody back together, I'm pretty happy that we're going to end right at about 8 o'clock. So you can say, not only was it good, but they didn't keep us all night long. So that's kind of exciting. We got, we got the, the both and. It's wonderful. It's a great thing to hold all that together. Uh, but just a reminder, the next time we'll be getting together uh, is on December the 5th. Uh, at Sacred Heart, we'll be in the gym, uh, and that, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of continue the conversation with a bit of a panel discussion, more opportunity for you to talk to one another. Please invite your friends, and like I said, it's nice to be able to tell them it was a, a nice evening, and we were done by about 8 o'clock. So tonight, I want to uh, conclude with... Uh, the opening prayer of a, a special mass, uh, the mass for the unity of Christians. Uh, so we have, you know, various different prayers uh, that you can set in uh, for uh, the Catholic mass, and this one's a, it's a beautiful one to be used on on different occasions to celebrate and to pray for the unity of all Christians. Now this is from the opening prayer, which we call the collect. Uh, which is right after, you know, the beginning with the sign of the cross, the welcoming, the penitential rite, the gloria, and then the, the collecting, like bringing everybody together as we prepare to hear the word of God. And so this opening prayer comes from that mass, and uh, just invite everyone to, to pray uh, for the unity of Christians as we pray this prayer. Almighty ever-living God, who gather what is scattered and keep together what you have gathered, Look kindly on the flock of your Son, that those whom one baptism has consecrated may be joined together by integrity of faith and united in the bond of charity. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, and we'll see you again on December the 5th. Thank you so much.